Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. Find over 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code TWIP10. This episode is brought to you by the new Squarespace. Squarespace introduces a new content management system, making it faster and easier to create a high-quality website or blog. Plus, they now offer mobile responsive designs with automatic device scaling and more than 50 other new features. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com slash twip and use the offer code Whip 10. This week on Twip, do Nikon's D4 and D800 pass the BBC test one year after Steve Jobs' passing? Getty Images celebrates its half-millionth image in the Flickr collection and an interview with Model Mayhem's Brian Diaz and Dean Johnson. It's Wednesday, October 10th, 2012, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about on the show today. First of all, uh, we're going to talk about the Nikon D4 and D800 passed the BBC test. And I think that BBC test is regarding to broadcasting. Is it is Are those cameras broadcast ready? Uh, we're going to talk about the one-year anniversary of Steve Jobs' passing, and just generally how what was his impact on the world and the industry of photography. And then finally, we're going to talk about Getty celebrating their half-millionth image in their Flickr collection. So I want to talk about that and uh, see if you guys care about that at all, because I don't think anybody on the show is uh, really a stock shooter or doing anything like that. Plus, we're going to have an interview. There's an interview insert with uh, two of the guys behind the popular site Model Mayhem. Brian Diaz and Dean Johnson sat down with me to uh, to chat about just the inner workings of the site, why they built it, where it's going, what it's for, some of the perils on that site, and all that good stuff. So joining me to discuss these topics and more are Mr. Eric Chang, Sarah France, and Dave Dugdale. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> you guys just say hi in harmony, like, you know, like three stooges. <laughs> practice that, for sure. I need that three stooges, three-part harmony thing going on. So let's kick it off. Uh, Eric, let's start with you. You've been running around the world. You were in Germany and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. What What is going on in the world of Eric and Lytro? Uh, well, after Germany, I went pretty much straight to a uh, press tour. And um, the results of that uh, just came out um, yesterday. So Lytro announced a whole bunch of stuff, including um, updated firmware with more control of the camera and... Um, you know, distrib- this is on the heels of the distribu- distribution announcement with, uh, you know, Amazon, Target, Best Buy, dot com, yeah, and also international distribution. So there's a lot going on, and um, it's really good to be home. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was really fun to go to go show uh, people that you know we are serious about uh, unlocking more potential with this camera, and uh, it's been great. the The response has been good. 
Yeah. And I, I do owe you a public apology, by the way. And you know why, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're going to bring it up. <laughs> I'm going to bring it up. I have to bring it up. So we did this this thing with CNET where uh, I was – I had never held a, a Lytro camera in earnest. I mean, I touched one before, but I never shot one before. So CNET called and they asked me to do a – uh, me and two other folks, two or three other folks, I think it was, to go and walk around the Embarcadero in San Francisco with Lytros and experience it as new users would. And so I did that and not knowing exactly how to use the camera or just sort of what the metaphor was for the camera. And I was a little lost with it. So I have then subsequently, like a week later or two weeks later, Eric, you and I sat down for lunch in San Francisco and you were telling me all the ins and outs of how the thing works and the technology behind it and sort of a level deeper. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how it works. So I, I owe you apology an apology because I was on the show and I was like, I don't get it. You know, I don't get it. And I didn't really get it until you and I actually sat down and had a conversation and and sort of talked about okay this is why we built this thing and this is why it's you know an important technology so yeah so congratulations on that and on that I want to talk about just just before we move on to the other guys I want to talk about the manual controls on the camera because that was one of the things that I think that I highlighted in that CNET video was how do professional photographers control this thing if you're used to a DSLR so you guys have you're you're addressing that can you talk about that just a little bit yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we've allowed control of the light field before, you know, basically the refocus range. Um, but it was impossible to control exposure other than tapping to center auto exposure. Um, and, you know, first of all, this, I mean, this camera is also not designed for professional photographers, but we do have a lot of enthusiasts and professionals buying it because the technology is so interesting and new. Um, and so, you know, we knew that people would want to control the camera more. And, and more than that, people would be experimenting with light field in, you know, so that they can produce pictures that weren't possible before or, you know, uh, told stories via interaction. And so it was really important for us to uh, allow people to, who really want to experiment, you know, full control of the camera. Um, Very and cool. so that's, you know, we had got a lot of feedback saying people wanted it. And so we did it. All right. Well, cool. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah. So for just for the people that own Lytros already, they can just update it and get those those controls or do they have to buy a new Lytro? <laughs> no, they can just update it. They just <laughs> plug it in uh, and, and run the desktop application and they'll be prompted for a firmware update. Awesome. Cool. All right. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but uh, welcome back to the country. And welcome back to TWIP. Thanks. Next up, Sarah France. You are you're on the show again, finally. Where, what have you been up to? Um, shooting a ton of weddings, of course. How did I, how did I guess that? I don't know. Something told me that you were doing that. A little birdie. Yeah. I've been doing a little bit of commercial shooting too. And then, um, this week is my birthday week. So lots of celebrating. Mm, happy birthday. I, bur- I celebrate all week long. I don't know if anybody else does that, but it's like Mardi Gras for Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone's invited all week long. Very cool. San Diego's on fire. Congratulations. <laughs> cool. Well, happy Thanks. birthday, Sarah France. Thank you. All right. And last but not least is Mr. Dave Dugdale. Hey, Dave. How you doing? Great. Great. What's going on in the world of uh, learning DSLR video? Well, for the last year or so, I've been always saying to myself, you know, i got to create a course. And I finally did it um, when I had the T4i versus the 60D, both those cameras in. Um, I made a training course, three hours of content for the T4i. And, uh, I told myself I'd finally, you know, I'm going to do it and I finally did it. And now I'm just about to release it this weekend. So oh, that's wow. what's been keeping cool. busy. 
That's Keep cool. So you're yeah. you're jumping. So you're you're now two feet into the world of internet marketing and digital yeah, and digital it's, training it's, and <laughs> e-learning, right? I'm trying. It's not as easy as you think. You're like, oh, it should be easy, but then you add the whole shopping cart and all the other stuff and the back end stuff to it. It's not. It's not as easy as it sounds. Dude, trust me, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Well, congratulations. We'll definitely have to uh, put some links to that on This Week in Photo when uh, when you make that available to the world. Cool. Thanks. All right. Let's jump right into the news. There's a ton of stuff going on, and I feel like I say that every week. Photography is just one of those industries that there's always something going on. I mean, and if there's nothing going on news-wise, we can always talk about technique and questions. So there's, like, there's just a never-ending like flow of stuff to talk about. So the first thing that we're going to talk about, as I alluded to in the intro there, after some controversy, the Nikon D4 and D800 did not pass the BBC test. So basically the story was the uh, Nikon was claiming on their website that both the D4 and the D800 had passed the European Broadcasting Union's test, known as the BBC test. And they were saying this makes them the first, this was their claim to fame on the website, that this was the first DSLR camera that was fit for broadcast. Well, now the BBC has pushed back a little bit, saying that uh, they cannot be recommended for serious program making. Of course, they spell program with an E at the end. Um, serious program making, and Nikon has dropped the camera from their website. So, or for that particular phrase saying that it's fit for broadcast so dave i want to throw this to you first because you are you're the guy in the show that knows about all this stuff and uh you're you know you actually wrote the course on this stuff. <laughs> so so what do you think of this is what do they mean De- demystify this for people that are scratch scratching their head and saying you know i thought the 5d was awesome they did an episode of house with that thing what is this with d4 and d800 being the first ones that are are fit for broadcast what does that mean well, in terms of broadcast, I mean, the only experience I have at broadcast is a broadcast um, class I had in college, which I absolutely loved. But um, I, I think most of the people like myself publish to the web, which is very different than, you know, having to worry about legal safe colors and all that stuff in broadcast, which I don't really know that much about. But what I can tell you is, you know, these cameras, I don't know if they're, you know, they're kind of tough to they have a different form factor. There's a whole bunch of other issues like... Um, uh, just just a ton of stuff. Like I think they brought up in that article, the um, rolling shutter, um, you know, because they were saying it's the best one they've ever tested, and, which is kind of odd because I tested the D800 versus the Canon 5D Mark III, and I kind of put them on a tripod, and I just, you know, back, whipped them back and forth. I know. I, I was tweeting about that, yeah. And then I looked at it, and they were, like, pretty much the same. I said, you know what? Let me try this with the iPhone against, like, the D800 and the 5D Mark III. And they were pretty much the same. You know? <laughs> you know, you could say, well, they were like 92 or 93 degrees. It was like off by a degree or two. And they're, they're, they all are terrible. Because I think what they do, especially with the uh, DSLRs, is they have what I think what's called line skipping. Because the sensor has like a 4K image. And, um, you know, you're knocking that down to like a 1080 resolution. So you're, you got to throw some information out. So I basically, I believe they skip lines. And when you do that, the processor has to be extremely fast, but it's not fast enough to be able to, you know, stop that rolling shutter from ha- happening. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't see how they could be. Um, I, I think you could use them out in the field. Yeah. Um, if you're just one guy, you know, creating an interview type thing, I think they'd be awesome for that. But like in a studio situation, if that's what they're referring to, I don't really see it that way. 
Interesting. Now, Sarah, on your side, on the wedding side, you, have you gotten into doing video and adding, just sort of flicking that switch on the back of the camera and shooting motion footage during an actual event? Um, I've done a little bit of it, but to be honest, without like the full production on the back end, it's kind of pointless. I mean, you end up with some videos that you can use and put together with some stills. And we thought about doing that a little bit, but it's, it's two different mindsets. You know, it's really your still mindset and video mindset and trying to meld the two is really hard. You kind of have to do one or the other. It feels like, um, I, and we're just, you know, if there's somebody dedicated to kind of focusing on video, I feel like if I'm, if I'm doing video, I'm constantly in the middle wanting to take still shots and yeah. that's not necessarily great for the video footage. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause there's, I mean, video is just a whole, it's a whole nother world as we we've, we've talked about ad nauseum on this week in photo, but it's not just the art of capture, but it's also the art of editing. <clears throat> it's also the art of storing all those terabytes of data that you, that you capture and then sharing it and all that stuff. So it's not, you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I, I know the direction where this stuff is going and I embrace it, but I'm still like, Oh Jesus, a lot of stuff for a photographer that just wants to create cool work to now add this, this level of, uh, of artis- artisanship into their workflow. I don't know. Yeah, and- I agree. Now, Eric, on on your side, so speaking specifically about underwater photography, which is sort of your the thing that you do maybe once or twice a decade when you get a chance <laughs> to get in the water when you're not flying around doing all this other cool stuff. Um, it, does this, like DSLR video, does that m- make its way into your world of underwater photography? And if so, what are the challenges there? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I've been shooting a lot of DSLR video uh, over the past few years. Um, I was a Canon guy, so I got a multi-year head start. <laughs> yeah, <you> see, <laughs> oh, oh nice jab. I like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's been great. And I, you know, I've actually sold quite a bit of video footage from the 5D Mark II. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's great because it, it actually sells for a lot more than what stills uh, typically license for. Right. Um, but I, uh, we use it all the time, and I actually find the ergonomics to be the hardest, uh, the hardest part of using a SLR underwater for video because, you know, it's not designed to be held in a stable way. And video cameras, uh, certainly the the serious ones underwater, have a lot of mass. You know, they're really big. You you can't shake them, and the you know as a result, all of the video is very smooth. Mm-hmm. And with my SLR, I mean, if I just touch the handle, which is of course you know way out on the side, the entire camera. Sh- uh, just uh, the field of view changes, and uh, you get a lot of shaky video. So yeah, it's definitely not not ideal for that. Um, but I think um, you know one of the I was I was thinking about this uh, when I was reading through the you know, the show notes, and um, I think one of the big issues is that these cameras um, are just they they fall apart. The footage that they take falls apart in post. And if you're doing broadcast, you have to do lots of color grading and matching multiple cameras, and you know these. Cameras pretty much all record four two zero for color sampling, and you just can't do a lot with that uh, when you're editing in post. And so, you know, that may be one of the reasons uh, they don't like the files that come from it. Um, and I guess the second point is that um, you know, if the footage is good enough, they're going to use any camera. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at this new series, Earth Flight, I've been dying to see it. You know, it's where this guy attaches 
cameras to birds. Mm. No, and, I haven't um, heard of it. What's it called? You know, Earth Flight? Earth Flight, yeah. And they're, they're doing, a, I think they're doing a, a video, a, a movie version for Discovery, you know, in partnership with BBC. Um, but he, he sticks these wide angle, super wide angle, slow motion uh, HD cameras on the backs of birds and, uh, you know, to get their point of view. And they're so wide angle, you can see the bird in the frame. <laughs> That's cool. And I'm pretty sure they're not using this, you know, a 30 pound HD camera <laughs> yeah. for that. You know, they're dissecting some, you know, fairly good quality HD camera, but I, I, I'm, you know, for sure it doesn't pass the standard, you know, so it, it just depends on what kind of, what the camera is going to be used for. I'm sure, you know, yeah. Well, here, here's a question I have for, the, for all three of you guys. So the iPhone or whatever smartphone you have presumably can shoot HD video. Is that good enough? Like for most things, like I know you're not going to be shooting, you know, the acceptance speech of the, the next president or whatever. You're not going to be doing all that kind of thing with it. But for 90% of the stuff that we do, if lit properly, is is the sensor in the iPhone or an Android phone enough to do, say, an interview or a cool youtube type video or something like that i think that that's the key point is what you said right there is if it's lit perfectly you know i think you know you could use the iphone and get just tremendous results and i'm sure the broadcast will take it if the story is compelling they're going to use the footage from the iphone if it's lit perfectly yeah definitely interesting interesting i don't know eric do you ever see yourself underwater submerging with a with a smartphone taking photos of underwater life uh, <laughs> I don't think so, but I but I do use GoPro cameras a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the quality from a GoPro is comparable to what an iPhone is going to shoot. It's a lot wider, obviously. Right. Uh, and if you you know, I stuck it in shark mouths, and GoPro just tweeted out a link to it. <laughs> you are insane. I love, I love the way you just say that just nonchalantly. You know, it's like yeah, I stuck a camera in a shark's mouth and got some shots there. It was cool. Yeah. Speaking of sharks and GoPros, <laughs> I actually went, took a GoPro out to dive with the um, leopard sharks out in La Jolla Shores a what? couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And they're, I mean, they're leopard sharks, not tiger sh- sharks. They're not, they're not going to hurt you. But what was fascinating to me is that I had these really great like goggles on that I bought that were like really expensive so I could see everything. And, uh, you know, the GoPro was on a head mount and, and, uh, I thought I saw like three or four sharks, you know, I'm just like hovering there and everything's cool. But I came home and looked at the footage and there was a literally, I counted over 20 sharks. Like I could see over 20 sharks in the what? couple minutes that I was sitting, that I was like <laughs> hanging out there and the GoPro got better visibility and footage than, than I could see. Like being right there and with how wide it was, I thought for sure it wouldn't see quite as much as I saw. I was, I was really, really impressed. I've been really impressed with the GoPro and the HD quality. I mean, just really phenomenal. And I was just really kind of playing around with it on vacation kind of stuff, but wow, it's, it's really impressive what it can do. What are the, what are those things run? I know they, there's a range of them, but like generally, what do they cost? They're like $300. (sighs) Three hundred dollars and you're in. You got a camera that, and you got to buy all the other kit, right? Like the head mount and all this a other million, stuff. A million, yeah, a million different mount options. We put one like on one of the wakeboards when we were wake surfing, and you know, you put them on the sides of motorcycles and cars. And um, it, 
I was in a helicopter and we mounted like one um, facing us and then one facing out. And it just, it's really fun because they're so small and easy to just mount that a lot of times I'm like, yeah, just throw a GoPro on there. We're good. You know, Sarah, Sarah, I have a question for you. Um, <laughs> the, I don't, I don't want to out you or anything, but are you a secret agent or something? Cause I'm hearing, I'm hearing you're, you're diving with sharks and now you're in a helicopter. Are you like, like what's going on? I live an adventurous life. I I am always looking for adventure. So you know, GoPros kind of fit along with that. I think I love my big, amazing, you know, five D Mark II. But I just I can't always take it out in the water. I love the fact that you can just submerge them, run them over with a car, all sorts of stuff. So. All right. So one last question before we move this particular, leave this particular topic. Um, and Dave, I want to throw this to you first, um, specifically about micro four thirds and mirrorless cameras. Is that the next wave of, like, or in other words, are DSLRs dinosaurs now? And the next wave is going to be these mirrorless cameras that are smaller, lighter, and presumably more capable than the cameras we have today? Ah, gosh, that's a really good question. Um, cause Canon's coming out with a new, um, APS-C, uh, I, can't, I think it's called the ESM, and it's coming out, I don't know, in a month or it might have already come out. I can't remember, but um, it's very similar to like, you know, a T2i or a T4i or a 60D or a 7D, the same same sensor, basically. Um, I think it's actually the same sensor. Hmm. But um, uh, that's a really good question. It just makes the body smaller. And for me as a camera guy or a video type guy, um and let me let me actually rephrase that because I am really I'm both. I love you know I love taking pictures with my 5D Mark III and my T2I. I just love taking pictures, HDR and all this stuff, and I love taking video too. I love doing both at the same time. So if there's more flexibility in having you know that mirror flap up and flap down kind of thing, I would rather just stick with a a normal you know DSLR than one without a, a mirror in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's a really good question because I ha- it's one of those things I think you really need to um, play with it and because it's going to be smaller and you're going to be able to fit it into things. Or, yeah, it's like muscle know. memory, right? Because I, yeah. I I pick up my my D seven thousand or my D seven hundred or the D three, and I'm like, you know, I know the weight, I know the heft, you know, and I I feel like when I whip that thing up, if I have a seventy two hundred lens on it, I kind of yeah, I feel like I'm in picture taking mode. But if I have a mirrorless camera here, a Panasonic, and I pick that up, I just I. It's kind of like the G9 experience right now for me. It's like, okay, I'm not really going to get any good shots. Even though it's as capable a camera in, in many ways as the other cameras, I just feel like because it's smaller, it's probably not as capable. Uh, yeah, and, and a really good like situation, like last week, the, um, the, the gymnasts, the Olympic gymnast girls came through and did a show. And you know they say no photography and all this stuff. And I go up in the stands and I'm looking around and there's some people with you know DSLRs with long lenses. And I'm like, how did you get in here? You know, And... And I was thinking if I could have had a smaller camera, a smaller form factor, you know, the security guys would look up and they wouldn't even care about me because, you know, it'd be a much smaller camera and it wouldn't look so professional or whatever. But you could get just as equally good results in low light um, because that the arena was very dark. Yeah. So I could definitely see a situation. It's one of those things I think you need to you know, try it out and you'll like, oh, I know the exact use for this thing. But I have a feeling it's, 
not going to be that often. But the, like Eric, on on the side of weight, right? And and I know weight is a key issue, and bulkiness is a key issue when you're when you're going underwater with these things. Do the smaller form factors of these these cameras buy you anything, or is it it's all based on the giant housing you got to put on it anyway, so it's negligible? Uh, it it does because they're uh, you know if you're swimming, there's drag, mm-hmm. and uh, so smaller housings tend to be you know, tend to let you swim faster. Uh, if you're shooting video, a small housing, of course, like, as we mentioned, is not, is not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really see any case in which D- DSLRs will win. I mean, that mirror, we're at the end of the SLR, you know, they're, they're really good and they're getting better, but we're at the very beginning of mirrorless. And with every generation, they're getting much, much better. I mean, look at how, how much autofocus has gotten better over the past few generations. It's basically caught up. And it can only go forward because, you know, you have all this light hitting the sensor now, not the stupid mirror, and now computers are in it. And once computers are in, it just gets better and better. So, you know, electronic viewfinders are in their infancy, and at some point, they're going to be good enough, and then they're going to get better, and they're gonna, you know, dynamic range will exceed what we can see. I mean, I think, you know, once you tie things to computers, they're just, they just get better. And optics, you know, optics are optics. Yeah. Well, I'll put you on the spot here. So, you know, looking at these these micro four thirds or mirrorless cameras and you know how heavy they are on the software side, because it's basically you're just carrying a computer that's always looking at the sensor. Is that an ideal platform for Lytro technology to be sort of grafted into? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Good. We'll leave it at that. I won't, right. I won't press any further. Cool. And then lastly, on Sarah, on your side, you know, I see you at weddings. You know, I, I can imagine you at weddings with your sort of all your gear on you and you can barely see Sarah France underneath all this stuff. Would you like it, it, on the perception side of things, if you showed up at a wedding with one of these smaller micro four thirds cameras or even a uh, just a regular mirrorless camera, would uh, would would that drop your perception of, of professionalism and maybe move your decimal point over a little bit on your price tag? <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever do anything to move my decimal point <laughs> over on my price tag, but I but it definitely would at this point affect perception. I mean, so many so many people who show up to weddings will show up with a 5D Mark II or 5D Mark III, like tons of great gear that people just have because it's so much more accessible and um, and reasonable these days and easier to to use and adopt. So having the latest gear is, you know, a lot of times just part of um, of of showing up and being kind of, you know, the latest and greatest. And it's the same as anything like your image is important and what you show up in and what you show up with like matters because the perception of how they perceive you, it, it matters more. I think for us as wedding photographers than it does for some others. Um, just because that's it. Like a lot of times they don't even, uh, the guests don't even see the images. Like the only thing that they see is you that day, Mm -hmm. how you looked, how you acted, if you had professional gear and they judge you based on it. It's just a fact, you know, it's not really something that you can, um, that you can play around with. I mean, I don't want to spend my whole day explaining to uncle Bob why I have a smaller camera than he has, or I have a, you know, just something that doesn't look cooler than what he has. So it, you know, 
once it gets to that point, those Uncle Bobs will know like, oh man, I wish I could afford that even smaller camera. That's so amazing. But it just hasn't quite gotten there yet. I'm super excited for it too, because my back is killing me from all this gear we got to carry around. But, um, but I think until then, you know, it's just, you got to kind of keep up the, keep up the race. Dave, Dave, when are we going to hit that point when the, when the race switches from, Hey, wow, you're a professional photographer. Cause you have a white lens and this big body and all this stuff to, wow, you're a dinosaur. Cause you have a white lens and this big body. <laughs> when are you going to get with it, grandpa and get one of these little cameras? Yeah. When, when are we going to hit that point? Well, that's a really good question. Cause I was doing a corporate video a few months back and, uh, the the talent knew I was going to be using DSLRs. That was CEO of the company, but their their marketing guy didn't. And he came in and he saw the camera. He's like, "We're shooting on that." But it was funny because um, I showed him some of the test footage I was doing because I was doing some green screen type work that we're going to do um, because we were shooting at a data center. It would have been way too loud to be in the data center, so I was shooting at a different location where it was quiet. And then I showed him the test of me, you know, on the green screen with the the you know the data center in the background that's keyed in and he was like wow that's awesome and it just took that just few seconds he was like i get it now it, this camera is totally capable let's just move on let's get creative so um that's really you know in terms of that situation it was a, an easy one to fix that person's perception of what we were shooting with but um like in sarah's situation yeah i don't know <laughs> I, it might take a while yeah yeah, interesting. I guess we'll we'll have to keep an eye on that because I, you know, I'm I'm in the market for my next DSLR, I think, or my next camera, I think. And I was talking to Doug K. I think we were talking on Google Plus or something today, trading trading messages, and he just purchased not too long ago, obviously, the Nikon D800e which makes those gigantic, you know, terabyte images. Terabyte. <laughs> and and uh, he was saying that the images are just too big because they're just way too unwieldy for what he's going to use them for. So he's saying he was going to sell it and probably get something smaller or like a, a Nikon D600 or something. So I don't know. It, it's interesting that people are starting to hit their head at the top of the that range of what they need and bounce back down into smaller, more manageable file sizes and camera body sizes. So interesting stuff. All right, guys. Story number two um, is about Apple. So this week that we're recording this episode marked the one year since Steve Jobs passed away. And uh, Apple stock is still somewhere around Jupiter. It's still starting in the $600 something range as we record this. And the the one misstep that Apple had was, or that we know about, was the uh, iPhone 5 launch and the Maps piece of that. So, And then we saw that letter that Apple's Tim Cook, the CEO, posted on the website, their, the little mea culpa about, you know, we're sorry, we're working on it, we're going to fix it, all that stuff. Um, but the, the share prices of Apple have soared 80% above the value of what it was valued at when Steve Jobs died. So the company's doing extremely well. And I think when Steve Jobs died, it was around one of the most valuable companies in the world. And now they're 80% higher than that. So in the this week in photo aspect of this, I wanted to pause and reflect on his legacy to the photography world specifically and put it to this panel. You know, just what you guys think, you know, what, what do you guys think about just 
iPhoneography, the iPad, and how that's affecting photographers, etc. Sarah, I want to I want to put it to you first specifically because I know I don't know if you, if it's now, but previously you had a portfolio of work in every single Apple store on the planet, right? <laughs> Yeah, we actually have a brand new wedding that just got released in all the Apple stores. And so there's a, if you see a wedding in the Apple stores, it's probably mine. That's Sarah France work. Cool. Cool. <laughs> so what do you think? I mean, what do you think about the impact of, I mean, we know everybody that, or not everyone, but lots of photographers have Macs, of course. So there's that, that impact. But what about in terms of iPhone photography and the iPad? Like specifically on your site, Sarah, I remember when the iPad first came out, you were one of the first photographers to actually deliver weddings on an iPad, right? I mean, how, do, how has this, the whole Apple movement affect your work? Well, I think there's like so many ways that that it's affected our work. And and the number one way is I kind of even on a personal level, um, the number of iPhones I see as the primary camera for people in their lives is just unbelievable throughout the even myself. I mean, I'm a professional photographer, but I will choose taking my iPhone over taking my camera for my own personal stuff, which is really um, says a lot. I mean, I think it's the accessibility and the size and and the good enough quality kind of thing, depending on on what the images that you're shooting and just iPhoneography with, you know, other professional photographers who have have demonstrated just incredible images and stuff they've been able to capture with the with the iPhone and showing kind of their eye and and more so about the creative side of it as opposed to even the technical side, which is what a professional camera can can bring you, but how simple it can be to create a stunning image in some ways. So and, yeah, shoot, it, e- shoot, edit and share with your, with the tip of your finger. Yeah, right? share for sure. And yeah. that being the biggest thing. And finally, I think DSLRs are coming around to getting that point. Hopefully we're almost there. I think we talked about it on the last trip of, you know, images being able to be shared from, from cameras, but I, it's phenomenal how Apple has pushed us in that direction, just in, in how they capture images, how we share images, how we enjoy images. Um, the iPad's been great for our business in so many ways of just being able to bring an iPad and show an image on a, a larger screen and make it feel approachable as opposed to a laptop that always felt so structured and businessy. And here, let me turn my laptop around. Mm-hmm. Like, the ease of, of sharing images. Like if I'm going to a location or if I'm going to meet a client or anything, I bring an iPad. I don't even bring a computer. Like there's no reason to. So, but another thing I've noticed is, I don't know, I've been to a couple like conferences or things and seen people, well, even out on vacation, seeing people with iPads, using them as their cameras. Like, I have people with their iPads like up taking pictures. Have you guys seen that? Like I see it all the time now and I'm just, I'm shocked that like people are actually using iPads even as their, as their cameras or as their, as their kind of point and shoots, if you will. So, I mean, there's so many ways that honestly, when Steve died, Steve, when Steve died, like it was a shock. I was so shocked and I was scared to death about what was going to happen to Apple. And the fact that they have done so well in this last year is just phenomenal. Like it just goes to show you that the 
the the company itself that you know he built is so strong and that they have so much more to give the world and to give our community specifically totally. in photography. Totally, you talk about changing the world, Dave. Actually, Eric, I want to throw it to you first. So you know when you when you look at the impact of Apple in the world, and you and you sort of ratchet it down, and you think about. Um, like what Sarah was saying, the movement away from using "quote unquote" high quality cameras instead, uh, or uh, or using camera phones or iPhones or whatever instead of high quality cameras. What is happening? I mean, is that is are the point and shoot cameras going away completely? Because as we talk through this show, I'm, I'm getting this vision of okay, DS, DSLRs are they're the dinosaurs are going away. They're going to be replaced by these mirrorless cameras. And then it's going to be the mirrorless cameras and your portable, your phone, your communication device. And that'll be the two kind of image capture devices you have. Is that what you see in the future? Yeah. Yes, I I do. I mean, I think the phones, the, you know, most compacts have been suffering in the market because uh, phones are, are so good. And, you know, if they can capture a picture that is very similar, in fact, the sensors are, are almost the same size. I mean, have typically been almost the same size. So, you know, it's really the same camera. The only difference are the optics and ergonomics. And, you know, if you want a, a camera that you can stick in your pocket, you know, this is, the one, this is it. And, and, of course, there's a huge benefit of having a, a really rich application infrastructure, you know, for editing. And if you look at things like Instagram, you know, Instagram combined, combined with the iPhone have really single-handedly made millions of normal people feel creative. And that is a really huge legacy that Apple is leaving behind. Of course, it's left just Apple products. Now, Instagram is available on Android. There are a lot of uh, similar products out there. Um, but, you know, they were the first to do it right. Um, and I guess another point is that uh, we're seeing this. I, I know that we want to talk about the photography impact, but we're also seeing this in the computing impact. I mean, people are leaving complex cameras to go to iPhones, but they're also leaving complex computers to go to mobile devices like iPad and other kinds of other tablets. And so, you know, this is great. I've always thought computers, traditional computers just weren't right. I mean, the keyboard and mouse, it's sort of contrived. It's unnatural. I mean, if you give a mouse to someone who's never used a computer, they have no idea what, what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ubiquitous mobile and embedded computing is kind of, you know, was really what computers were destined to be. And I feel like the iPhone and the iPad were the first signs of that. And, you know, which has been obvious since everybody now is, is copying and making similar similar devices yeah yeah i love it dave do you have anything to add to this you know when you're talking about steve jobs legacy you know something always comes to mind and it's kind of i don't know kind of funny um back in a long time ago when star trek voyager was on i was a big star trek fan and there was one episode with this guy uh i think the actor's name's ed begley or Mm -hmm. big begley i think his name is well there was one episode where he was on there and he um was this CEO of this high tech company and he was so far ahead of everybody. He was like way out there. And, um, the Voyager comes back to the 1990s, um, through time travel or whatever. And they find out that, you know, this guy, you know, the reason why is because, you know, he found this, uh, spaceship that crashed and he kept it a secret and he used all that stuff for advances of his technology. So when I think of Steve jobs, 
he, I remember getting the iPhone for the very first time. I, I saw it at a party from an actual Apple employee. It was you know, back then I had a trio and I looked at the iPhone comparing my trio. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's like a world difference. It was just incredible leap of, you know, technology. And I keep thinking back to the episode where it's like, maybe Steve jobs found this space alien spaceship and all this technology is alien or something. Cause he was so far ahead of his time. Um, and I, you know, I'm a PC user myself, but, um, I had to buy the iPhone. Um, yeah, that's that's what I think when I think of Jobs' legacy. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, looking forward to a year from now, the mind boggles as to what we'll have in our hand. I mean, right now, state of the art is the iPhone five on the on the Apple side is the iPhone five and the the new iPad and the Retina Mac and all this stuff. And you know, just a year from today, I'm wondering what gear we're going to be sort of examining our checkbooks to see if we can buy. <laughs> you know? It's crazy. Crazy talk. All right. Story number three, real quick, is about Getty Images. So, as I mentioned, they their collection reached the half a million mark. So, three years ago, Getty partnered with Flicky, Flickr, Flickr. Maybe I should register that. Flicky. <laughs> <laughs> Flicky.com. Um, Marissa Mayer, look out. Uh, so Getty partnered with Flickr to create a database of Flickr images that could potentially be used as stock images and could be sold and licensed, etc. The idea being to tap into this giant pool of Flickr talent to sort of increase the offerings to the to the stock to the people looking for stock photography. So apparently it's working because they're at half a half a million now. So um, Eric. I think you may be one of the only ones on the sh- on the show that actually do sell stock photography. What do you think about this? And do you have any images in the Getty Library? I have one picture <laughs> in there, and <laughs> one, and, then, and it's made you a million dollars. Yeah, I think it's maybe like twelve dollars or something. <laughs> but I submitted it as a test, really. I mean, I, I've had, you know, they, Getty has asked for dozens, if not hundreds, of my underwater pictures via Flickr, and. Um, and the process was always a little bit uh, uh, difficult because they want, of course, high-resolution pictures uploaded to Flickr so they can just pull it directly. But I don't upload high-res to Flickr. And certainly not high-res unwatermarked to Flickr. Right. And, um, and I, so I don't really... I don't know. I, I'm also not a big fan of, of royalty-free imagery for my own work. Um, of course, the other people can do what they want. And so because... It's you know the at least the policy when I looked at it last was we can use we can license your pictures royalty free, or you know rights limited and and so I that's why I only I only put one and the one I put was a screaming turtle picture which I've already lost control of I mean I think the last search I did had it list it was embedded on twenty thousand websites oh jeez so you know I, what can I do so that's the picture I gave them um, but interestingly I think. Um, so someone from Getty, whether I won't name him, but uh, SVP of Business Development, spoke at Luminance, which is this conference that I spoke at a few mm. weeks ago. Yeah, and um, he said a couple things that were that really pissed off the photographers in the crowd. I mean, afterwards, people were actually they. I saw rage. You know, they people were saying he flat out lied about rates paid back to photographers. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that was really interesting is during his talk, he said the bottom line is that we are working in the interest of our shareholders. And uh, that was pretty clear. And, um, and then he got out of there really fast after, after the talk. Yeah. Wow. 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 Interesting. I mean, is, is, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I have different thoughts about that, the whole microstock industry, because I, I know and I've interviewed several photographers that are making Nicole. Nicole is one of them that are making a good living on doing just microstock photography. And then I sort of rewind back and I talk to some of the old gar that are in the heyday of stock photography that used to make a really good living on there. Um, and they're not very happy at all. Sarah, what do, you, what do you think about micro stock and just stock photography in the state of that overall, that industry? Um, you know, to be honest, I don't know too much about it because it's not really something that we delve into. You're at not all. selling I mean, your, your wedding albums as stock? Come on. That's a whole, that's a whole new revenue stream. I'm trying to get my clients to release their full weddings so <laughs> that I can stock photography and sell them but um for some reason they're not really going for it i know some people who've kind of jumped into it a little bit and i've never seen like huge success in it um at least from the people that i know so um i've always been kind of like oh that's something cool you do if you you know want to make a couple extra bucks i mean obviously there's a lot of money to be made in it if you're doing the right things but the state of the industry, I've I've never looked for stock photography myself, and it seems like, um, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure the TWIP audience will, um, but it seems to me that if uh, companies are looking for something, they just hire a photographer to shoot it. They have something in mind, and they say, I want this and this, and I want it to look like this, and I want it with our people in it, you know? Yeah. I want our customers. I want... It's all about reality TV. It's all about knowing the person on the other side. So it just seems like stock photography has really suffered because of kind of the state of, of just how we are as humans being really interested in other people and, and being connected as much as we can. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right. I want to jump from this discussion into our first sponsor. Our first sponsor of this show is squarespace.com. And uh, This Week in Photo is sponsored by the new Squarespace. They've officially launched and they've geared it towards photographers that are looking to make their portfolios pop with a P.O.P. So they have a completely new design and new templates that showcase your photos in a gallery, a collage, a slideshow, all this stuff. And it's all built with a drag and drop interface. It's easier than ever before. The content, the cool thing about Squarespace and I, I love about it is they're they're, the whole design of the site is responsive, meaning the content automatically resizes and re- restructures itself to fit on whatever particular device that you're viewing it on. For example, if you're looking at it on an iPhone or an Android device, it will smartly deliver the right size for that screen instead of delivering this gigantic image and then scaling it down for that small window. So you, it's really s- smart and efficient about the way it delivers data. Plus, you can pull data and content from your blog that's published on Squarespace and push it back out to your social network. So you can use your your website, your Squarespace website, sort of as a central repository for your um, your online presence. So you can try it out. You don't need a credit card. You just go to squarespace.com slash twip and start your trial. Make sure you use the offer code TWIP10 when you purchase, and you'll get a hefty 10% discount. It's definitely cool. Just quickly, some of the cool features in there are, like I said, the drag and drop is really cool. Their new engine, they call it Squarespace 6, the new engine behind creating your online portfolio. They've got a ton of cool templates built in that you can just pick one and then edit it and make it your own. That whole responsive feel or the the responsive design. 
so that your site restructures itself and just it just goes on and on and on so definitely check it out they've got lots of resources on their site for you to get your feet wet and check it out plus you don't have to pay anything just you know jump in and try it out and uh, see if you like it so once again that is squarespace.com forward slash twip and uh, when you get over there make sure you tell them that uh, this week in photo sent you Okay, right now I want to insert an interview. This is an interview I did with Brian Diaz and Dean Johnson, two of the guys behind the magic over at ModelMayhem.com. So if you're at all interested in shooting models or photographing models, definitely give this interview a listen. Okay, a special tweet for the This Week in Photo listeners today. I had a chance to, um, or I have the chance to, sit down virtually with Brian Diaz and Dean Johnson. They are a couple of the guys that are behind Model Mayhem, um, insiders inside of the Mayhem. So they're going to help us understand what Model Mayhem is, who it's for, just sort of the history of the site a little bit. And then specifically, I want to get into people that are interested in, in photographing models, you know, whether it be male or female, how do you, what are the steps and what are some of the pitfalls that you might, you might hit and how to avoid them as you move forward. So Brian and Dean, welcome to this week in photo. Thank you. All right, guys. So before we kick it off, where, where are you both at? You're, you, I, when I do these interviews, I have no idea where in the country or in the world where people are, where are you guys located physically? Uh, well, I've just actually moved out of New York City into the suburbs. Uh, we bought a house. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thanks. All so right. I'm, I'm in Connecticut right now. Oh, Connecticut. Oh, look at that. Cool. All yeah. right. And Dean, where are you at? I am located uh, just uh, outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. I, don't, I haven't heard an accent yet. Will we hear one during the interview? <laughs> not for me, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> you you're trying to hide it or it's just not there <laughs> no you know actually it's, it's there are some people here definitely that, that have a that minnesotan accent mm-hmm. but for the most part we really don't okay cool now which one of you has been with model mayhem the longest do you think that'd be brian okay brian i'm going to throw this first question to you then so model mayhem the history of like from your standpoint, where where did the site come from? Where did it start, and why was it started? Well, it was started um, kind of on a whim by uh, our founder, uh, who um, who was a twenty two year old kid at the time who knew some programming and and saw saw a niche that had an opportunity, um, and it it kind of grew by surprise. I don't think any anyone was expecting it to to skyrocket the way it did, um, but it you know it just became a, a a place where people could come and and very casually and in a very simple way network with each other and make meet some people and take, make some pictures. Very cool, and it seems to it seems to have taken off, um, and it doesn't really show any signs of stopping at least not from my standpoint <laughs> you know maybe you guys can talk a little bit about that dean do you what what's your perspective on the performance of the site and just sort of you know the the that space or the modeling space in general is, are you seeing an uptick in new profiles being created is it flat or down uh you know it, it's amazingly enough it seems like we can't keep up and we've just never have been able to as far as when it comes to new profiles coming in uh, it, it just, it's never ending. Uh, 
and I, I wish I had some current stats. If I'd have thought ahead, I, I probably should have went and looked at some stats as far as you know what new profile numbers coming in. But um, it's incredible. We, we've got a, a great team of gatekeepers that go through profiles, and they they have a difficult time keeping up. Okay, well, well, let's talk about that a little bit. What's a gatekeeper, and what do they do? They review profiles. We have a, a system set up where where they go in, and there's a queue where all, all the new profiles that it, that have been submitted, uh, and they go through the queue, and they take a look at the pictures and uh, the About Me section that the person has entered, and then they vote yes or no, uh, depending on if that person meets the requirements or not. Oh, okay. So they nope. like literally the gatekeeper, you know, like the thumbs up, thumbs down person, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's set up in such a manner that it takes um, you know, more than one gatekeeper to decide on a profile. And what what would what would lead you to a thumbs down? Uh model profiles say with with nothing but cell phone pictures that they just snapped in a mirror. Mm. You know, we like to see people that have at least put forth a little bit of effort and thought into, hey, I'd like to be a model or I'd like to be a photographer or whatever it is and put a little thought into it rather than just a whim, I'm going to snap some cell phone pics and, and join this site. Yeah, yeah. Now, from from either one of you can take this next question. From your perspective, if you know people may not have heard of model mayhem right so for the folks that may not have heard of it what's the what's the elevator pitch for the site like who is it what is it for and, you know obviously it's for models but you know what what's the mission of the site well it's to give anyone who works with models really um as an on an artist kind of basis like photographers and makeup artists hairstylists um just to give them an opportunity to to network and get to know each other, uh, make some connections and, and get some shoots or, or whatever kind of art you want to uh, create. And how, do, how are you make how are you guys making money on the site? Is it subscription? I, and I'm asking this kind of tongue in cheek cause I have a subscription to the site. So, you know, just for the people that are listening, what's the revenue model? Well, it's, it's uh, ad based and then there are subscriptions. Um, so you can, I mean, there's like, there Everyone can get a free profile, but if you want more, more pictures and more messages that you can send out per, per day, uh, you get increased features as you as you subscribe. Okay, got it, got it. Now, Dean, you were talking about back to that gatekeeper stuff you were talking about. So I didn't know that the the it, it, that's almost it's almost the profiles are almost curated, right? So just to keep to keep the level of quality at a certain level, right? So. The the influx, I would imagine, it's like an uh, just an influx of people that are coming in there all the time. How are you? How are you guys able to? It reminds me of like iStock Photo, and there are those guys curating all the images that come in and giving them the thumbs up and thumbs down. How do you stay on top of that? Uh, we just got a lot of great gatekeepers that that uh, volunteer their time to to go through and review profiles. Um, and, and I don't even know the numbers right now, but we've got. You know, probably a couple hundred gatekeepers that uh, that review profiles. Wow. Um, and those those that's distributed, right? There, it's not like it's a room with a bunch of people in it going through profiles. These are these are folks all over the world or country. Exactly, they're they're just members of the of the site of the community that are volunteering their time to help out. If someone's listening to this and they're already a member of Model Mayhem and they're like, "Hey, I want to be a gatekeeper. How do how do I get into that gig? What uh, what what should they do?" 
Uh, we have a thread with some information on that in a general in- industry forum. It may be a little bit difficult to find, but if one wanted to use the search feature and just search for, uh, well, they could search for Seeking Zool. Yeah. Um, just kind of a, a reference to the, uh, the Ghostbusters movie, but they could find that thread or they could just simply uh, click on the help tab at the very top of the page and contact a moderator and we'll help them. Very cool. All right. So so we got the what is Model Mayhem, who it's for, where it came from, all that stuff. Um, let's go in and talk a little bit about the modeling industry itself. So the, when I would love you guys are like industry experts. I, I kind of put you in that bucket of people who are you got your finger on the pulse of what you know, professional and amateur photographers are trying to do with regard to model or shooting models and glamour and all that sort of thing. So what, what's the state of the, the modeling industry from the standpoint of, uh, are people, you know, the photographers that build businesses around it, are they making money doing it or is the, the idea of shooting models as an amateur, you know, you're not a the professional Hollywood, New York guy. You're just, you know, uh, a, an amateur photographer that wants to shoot models. Is there a business in that? Well, there are a lot of different ways that you can go about it. Um, and they're because they're, you know, photography is, is infinite. So there are so many different things that you can do with it. Um, I mean, there's always, if you're just trying to make, make money shooting models, there's, you're probably not going to make a lot of money doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, but if you have, you know, commercial clients, if you're, if you're in fashion and, or, you know, selling products that that's an easy, that's how most people will actually make money being able to pay models, being able to have a full, a full crew. Um, and the other way, uh, which is also very difficult would be through, through fine art mm-hmm. uh, make, you know, Using using models to make to make art and have gallery shows or sell prints, anything like that. Okay, so then you know you mentioned you know paying models, and I've heard some photographers say, yeah, you know, I my my schedule is full from models wanting me to shoot them, and I charge them X amount of dollars, you know, and they're making a business out of it from models paying them. And then conversely, I hear from other photographers that are saying. Oh well, yeah, I pay all my models, you know, and I pay them anywhere from like a hundred dollars an hour or whatever to to pose for me. And then the third leg of that tripod is they do the uh, you know the the time for prints or whatever the TFP where I'll shoot. You know, you shoot the model and you don't no money exchanges hands. She gets images retouched images from you. You get a pretty girl to shoot, and everybody's happy at the end of the day. What's the right way to go with this stuff, Dean? You you take it first. What's the right way to go? GWC or not GWC? Uh, TFP time for print. Um, you pay the model or the model pays you. You know, there really is no right way. Um, it's up to the individual and, and what, their, what their goal is, what they're trying to accomplish, uh, you know, what they're doing. Obviously, if someone is set up and they're selling fine art prints and they've got a market for those images, those are the kinds of people. And, and there's many other categories I could mention, too, like Brian mentioned, commercial photographers and whatnot. But if a photographer has a, a market for images and is able to, um, get paid from shooting a model, then it makes sense that he's able to pay the model. Yeah. Um, 
if it's the shoot for fun, which happens an awful lot, you know, and uh, there's a lot of photographers that don't necessarily have a market, and they, they're not making money on images, but they're still producing something that, that a model might benefit from having or an aspiring model. Um, so they can get together and do their TFP um, shoot, no money, exchanges hands, uh, and hopefully they each get images that they enjoyed making and can benefit from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great, uh, Brian. What about you? What do you what do you think about that? That the three well, legs of the revenue tripod there. Well, the way I see it is that photographers don't pay anybody, models don't pay anybody, clients pay. Mm-hmm. And now sometimes the model is also the client. When if a model is trying to build her, his or her book to get other jobs, that makes the model the client. If you're if you're trying to sell prints or stock or or whatever, the photographer might be the client. So, so whoever, whoever whoever intends to profit from the photos is generally the one who's who's going to want to make the payment. Yeah, unless unless like Dean says, it's uh, it's just shoot your for fun. Then the model and the photographer are the client, and it's a, it's a skill benefit. trade, right? Yeah, if there's mutual benefit. Then yeah, yeah. For it. But really, really, you deserve whatever you you can negotiate. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Whatever the market will bear, right? Exactly. Exactly. So let's let's talk a little bit about contacting models, you know, and you know, say, you know, the the search engine on Model Mayhem is awesome. So you could say, okay, I'm I'm looking for a model to shoot in the San Jose area. Here's my zip code and I want to go out as far as a 15-mile radius. Um, and I'm looking for this kind of model, this kind of body type, this ethnicity. Um, you can get to that level of granularity, hit search and it'll bring you back a list of people that fit your criterion then what what do you what what do you do from that point you're the photographer you're sitting there i'm looking for the model say you have a conceptual shot in mind you want to do say you want to shoot an african-american model um you want to do something in the desert or whatever and you have a specific look in mind you search model mayhem in your area you find like say 20 girls that sort of match what you have in mind for the shoot then what 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 do you do from that point forward Brian, I'll, I'll throw it to you first. What do you do? What do you do once you see you have a, the search results in front of you of all the models? Now what? Uh, well, I would just send a private message. I and mean, there's a, a private message system on Model Mayhem where you can just send a note and say, just, I, you know, the best way to do it is to be straightforward and say, like, here's my concept. I really like your look. I think you would fit. And what do you think? You know, here's, here's the budget if there is one. Very cool. Very cool. Now, what about tagging? Is it is there is there a etiquette on Model Mayhem for tagging? Because I know some people say, okay, before you contact me, please tag me. And tagging means comment on their profile, right? So, is do you guys see that as an etiquette, or is it okay to just send messages to the models first? Well, some people have their own their own way. I think it's important to before you contact anybody to read the the profile yeah. thoroughly. And just make sure that there's, well, it's a first. It's a good way to, to screen out people who you who might not interest you for other reasons other than their photos. Yeah. Um, but then they might have they might have preferred methods. So so you should you, know, you may want to respect those. And if you don't feel like it, you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> do, do your homework first. Yeah. Dean. Dean. What about you? You have any insight on the whole idea of contacting models? Um. I, you know, I don't do. I, I may be a little bit different than a lot of photographers in the sense that 
I don't necessarily come up with a concept of a spe- and, and ha- have a specific need for a specific model mm-hmm. for and then go searching for that specific thing. Um, uh, so it's a little bit different for me, but yeah, basically, if there's somebody I find that I want to work with um, for for whatever I I want to produce, I uh, just send them a message and and uh, see if they're interested. Um, and like Brian said, I, I try to read their profile because obviously, you know, if you come across a model who's strictly a commercial model and they state that in their bio and you can see that in their image, there's no sense in contacting them to shoot glamour because they're probably not going to be interested. Right. right. Um, obviously, you can you can certainly uh, mention that and see if there is any interest because um, sometimes pictures don't always exactly tell you what the what the model might be interested in. But that's the purpose of a portfolio is to show their interests but yeah it, it's it's pretty simple contact them and be straightforward and uh, see if there's any interest yeah i love that now now you know back to my example of say you you did a search and dean i'm gonna throw this one to you first so say you you did the search um you maybe you don't have a concept in mind but you just want to you want to find models in your area that meet a certain you know criterion and you find that and you have the list um do you do you go through and say copy and paste a message to each one of them say it's like 30 girls do you send one send a message to one and and wait that for her to respond or do you send a message to all of them and wait for them to respond what's the proper way to do that boy i don't know if there is a proper way except for the fact that i would recommend avoiding the the canned message and just copying and pasting the same thing to numerous girls Mm -hmm. um a lot of times they can, you know, they, they come across as a canned message and people can sense that it's just something that's being copied and pasted to many people. I like to personalize messages, uh, comment on, on particular aspects of that particular model. Um, like if her hair is something that caught my eye, you know, I, I would comment on that. And if you're copying and pasting, you can't really personalize it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, let's yeah. move. Let's really, oh, go sorry. ahead, go ahead, Brian. It's really a networking site. So the more you know, like Dean was saying, if you're if you're showing a personal interest, people are going to be more responsive to that. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. You don't be a machine and get in there and just you know say hey, because it's almost like spamming, right? At that point. Yeah, I I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of, you know, this is this is questions that I'm, I'm channeling a lot of people that I know that use Model Mayhem and some of the issues they have. One of them is flaky models, right? And in, and I've talked to models as well, and their problems are flaky photographers, right? So, so <laughs> how do you avoid the flake? You know, what's, what are some tips, you know, uh, Dean, I'll throw it to you first. What, what are some tips to avoid... You know, if you're a model having a photographer flake out on you or if you're a photographer and you've set this thing up and you took a day off from work and you're all ready to go and the model doesn't show up or, call, or send you a text message at the last minute or after the last minute saying, hey, sorry, but, uh, you know, I couldn't find a babysitter. What, what do you do? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I've never had a flake. <laughs> I, I, I don't have the problem that it seems like a lot of photographers do. Um, and. To me, the secret is is communication, and that's the secret to just about everything. Um, but I I insist on a phone call. I will not I will not set a photo shoot up without having at least one phone call with that model. Hmm. Um, they either must give me their phone number, and I will call them, or they need to call me. 
And I weed out a lot just from that. Some people will not call me. Some people will not leave me a number. I, I just will not shoot with them, period. Oh, I love that. See, that's that's a great tip. My The way that I do it is I take it one step further. Before I schedule a shoot, I want to sit down at a Starbucks and have a physical meeting with this person and just talk and make sure that she knows that I'm not some creep. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to put her in a trunk and take her in the desert or anything. And I know that she's not insane as well. (laughs) So, you know, I try to make friends with the model and kind of try to connect on some level on a different day than the shoot is scheduled and then you know things seem to run much smoother i don't know that's just the way that i do it brian what about you you have any tips for um avoiding flakes yeah i I definitely agree with with seeing that communication is really the most important thing um but what i would have what i would say is to look for people who have uh who have built a reputation and and have something to lose if they if they flake i mean if somebody if somebody has spent time like building a business as a model, then they're they're really not going to to risk that yeah. by not showing up one day. Because then you can you can it's social media, right? I mean, you guys are a social media site. They can you can easily not that you'd want to do this, but you can someone can easily get a tarnished reputation by being known as the flake, right, and not get any more calls. Yeah, yeah. photographers talk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's and, crazy. And models, so, you know, and so what I feel one of the best things for you to do—I mean, not you, but you, everyone, you—is to build that kind of a reputation. And you know, if you become one of those people who is is communicative with with a lot of different people in your community, um, people will will sell you for yeah. you. You know. Yeah, yeah. Now, what are, what are some tips, uh, Brian? While, while you're on that, that that tangent, what are some tips on um, profiles, for example? Because I, I go through Model Mayhem. I was going through it in preparation for this interview. I'm on it. I have my own profile up there, and I see a whole different range of different types of profiles. You know, I see you know, looking at photographer profiles. I see some with just like verbose, almost like a sales letter kind of thing in there of you know this is the kind of stuff I like to do. I want to shoot this. And some of them are very terse. Like mine, for example, mine is just like, Hey, I do this, this, and this. <laughs> yeah. what, what's, what's the most effective sort of profile if you want to attract, say models to shoot with? What do you, what's the right way to go? Oh, I don't even know. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a tough one. It depends, that, right? That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. I think it should, your profile should in some way, reflect your personality and what it a little bit of what it's like to to work with you i don't know that there's any way to measure that or to have any idea successful um but but if you kind of if you make that kind of an effort then maybe i'd definitely say don't make it too long because then nobody's ever going to read it yeah 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 Yeah. or don't make it too short because then people will be suspect right yeah nobody will know anything about you (laughs) yeah yeah you have anything to add to that dean um, no, I think I think Brian nailed it. Okay, uh, cool, cool. So, th- go ahead. I was just going to say you should try to you know in a couple of paragraphs um, say a little bit about yourself and your interests in the industry, whether you're a photographer or a stylist or makeup artist, model, um, and then move on. You know, yeah, and it should be positive. I should say that too. You know, a lot of times we see a lot of negatives on profiles. And I don't think that's good. Personally, I, I don't like going to a model profile and seeing a bunch of negatives like, don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't like this. And I, it's like, well, okay. 
move on. I don't recommend right. this person or these people. That's a big yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you just don't mention it, right? If you're if you don't like to shoot a certain kind of thing, just don't highlight it. Just talk about the things that you do like to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just mention what you are interested in. Yeah. I like Leave that. the negatives out. That's great advice. Great advice. Okay, another another question that comes up a lot is the whole idea of GWC. Get you guys know what GWC is? Oh yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, the, Dean, why don't you define what the acronym GWC means and how to how models can avoid them and how photographers can avoid getting that label? Well, first, I think it's good that we define what it is because a lot of people, I, I don't think a lot of people understand really the implications behind that title. Yeah. Um, GWC just is simply um, guy with camera, and what it implies is that it's a photographer who just happens to have a camera and he's using it. Um, to to get around pretty girls, yeah. um, and and there's a little bit of a negative connotation there, and I, you know. But on the other hand, I got to say a lot of models rely on GWCs for their income, hmm. especially the nude models, because a lot of quote unquote GWCs pay models to shoot with them because they're not necessarily good photographers. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of these guys do it as as a hobby and you know, but they like being around pretty girls and they like pointing their camera at a pretty girl and they like getting pretty pictures. Um, but they're not necessarily a talented photographer. And so in order to get with some of these, you know, girls, these models, they pay them. Um, and I got to say, there's a lot of models on Model Mayhem that make their living off of GWCs or what most of us would consider a GWC. It's almost like, like photography escorts, right? <laughs> Kind of, sort of, but I don't know that it's quite that negative, and I don't know that it's that it's quite that bad. I mean, on on some level, even even the concept of a GWC hiring a model is kind of creepy. Yeah. But for the most part, it's been my experience that most of these guys are absolutely harmless, absolutely harmless. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but that that's the key word most, right? So so it's just so what you, what tips would you give models just to avoid the you know putting themselves in harm's way because a lot of times like when i shoot models i'll tell them yeah feel free bring a friend along you know it's i don't i don't care just to put their mind at ease that even if they don't bring a friend they know that they could have so that it makes them feel safer and you open up a whole nother can of worms there (laughs) brian brian do you want to deal with the um the other the first part of that question oh um no <laughs> okay, <laughs> Brian. I love that. It's like a long pause. Brian thinks about it, thinks about the ramifications, and he's like, "No." <laughs> I just didn't want to, you know, take over the conversation here. But, um, and actually, now I've forgotten what the first part of that question was because you you mentioned escorts, and I just kind of went, Ooh. "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So, <laughs> so from the standpoint of, so you know, we we talked a little bit about about the, how models are making a business model out of capitalizing on the GWC, the guy with camera or the amateur that just wants to look at pretty women. Uh, but from the standpoint of the model, you know, how do you screen for these? For oh, the, oh, the, oh, yeah, the, that was it. Yeah. Um, basically, it's pretty simple. And Brian kind of touched on it before um, when he mentioned the, the credentials that someone else built up. Um, you know, just has that person worked with other people on Model Mayhem? Um, check their references. Contact models that that person has worked with. Um, if you go to a, to a photographer profile... 
and the pictures look kind of crappy, and there's no credits to uh, Models on Model Mayhem that you can't check. There's no references to any models he's worked with on on his About Me section or his credits section. Um, then you got to kind of wonder, you know. On the other hand, if the guy's got references, contact those people he's worked with and ask what it was like. It's pretty yeah. simple. Yeah, yeah. This is how it sounds like common sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Brian, you you have anything to add to that? It is. Uh, one thing I would say is is that sleaziness doesn't know talent, so you can't yeah, really judge a person's good uh, a person's photography to and and know anything about how they're going to act or how they're going to treat you. There's, there's some there's really some. really talented photographers out there who there I would recommend people stay far far away from. I agree. Um, so, so just to make sure I understand that. So sle- you said sleaziness doesn't know talent, which I, I love. I love that quote. I need to put that on a T-shirt. But <laughs> so basically, you're saying the sleazy photographers that are out there are going to have crappy portfolios anyway. So just steer steer clear of those and and aim towards the photographers with portfolios that clearly show they know what they're doing behind the camera. Actually, I was saying the opposite. Where the, oh, the opposite you can't tell. You can't tell. You might you might see a great portfolio and they and then. You show up to a shoot, and they're they're terrible, or not terrible as photographers, but terrible in how they treat you, how how they act. Right. Yeah. So, Some of the so most dangerous. It's really, it's really about communicating with with the photographers. It's communicating with the community around them. So. So the so the way to screen then is so not so you're saying Brian not so much look at their work because the the work can be deceiving un, into how they treat you, but use the community. And and look at what people are saying about them, the tags that they're getting, and that sort of thing to be a guide as to if they're going to be a safe and and good person to work with. Exactly, and it's it's you really have to do your due diligence before you you work with anybody. Yeah, so don't just look at it and say, "Hey, wow, this guy does some amazing black and white shots. I want to work with him," and then set up a shoot with him, you know, and then not looking at the the comments on him that say, wow, I can't believe what you did on that shoot. <laughs> you know, that, that was crazy. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really good advice. Dean, what, what about you? You have anything to stick on that before we move on? Um, just, just that most of the time you're not going to see a lot of negative comments because if a model is going to leave a negative comment, Oh, you were such an ass at the shoot yesterday. That the guy's going to delete that comment. Mm. So you're not going to see that. It's more about, um, seeing if the if the person has worked with other model mayhem models and then contacting those models and asking about their experience. Mm. So again, do your homework, right? Checking references, yeah, yeah, love that. Yeah, that's good. This is this is like golden advice for anybody that's that's looking to get into this stuff because you don't you don't generally hear this stuff at all <laughs> from anyone. I mean, you, you you guys have a ton of resources on the model mayhem site, but hearing it from the horse's mouth goes volumes further than just reading it and. And trying to, to distill it you can, that way, you know, you can find most of this in the forums, but you got to sift through a lot of a lot of nonsense, I, I think, to get these uh, tips. Yep. But yeah, so it's all there. Yeah, yeah. There, there are there are a few really good articles um, that that models have written about this topic um, in our EDU section. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll search for that and I'll link to that in the in the show notes for this episode. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. All right, so let's let's sort of wrap this up with like just trends in the industry uh, that you guys are seeing. Like I was saying in the beginning, you're kind of sitting at the nexus of 
modeling and photography and makeup artists and all that stuff, you know, in this genre. And we all know that photography itself is one of the fastest growing hobbies in the United States. So you guys are in many ways sitting at the the middle of one of the fastest growing trends in the world here. So what do you see in terms of how, what are like just sort of take it any direction you want, you know, creatively, are you seeing certain trends that people are shooting creatively? Are you seeing certain trends and how people are paying each other? What, what do you think? What, what kind of, what can you read from the tea leaves? Brian, I'll throw it to you first. Well, I think that, I think that we're at a really exciting time uh, for creativity. Um, I think we're, we've gotten over a bit of that, that really annoying discussion of film versus digital. And we've embraced it, that, um, the, the, the end result is what matters. Um, and you know, however you get that end result. So there people are, are open to experimentation, um, just trying anything. And I, I'm really excited about what's, what people have been producing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And then the gear as well. I mean, there's, we talk about gear on this week in photo a lot and the gear has just gone so far in the last just five years. It's insane, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Dean, what about you? What what are your predictions, or what, where where are you seeing things go in say you know the next six to twelve months? Uh, there seems to me to be a, a kind of a, a trend towards going toward like the Instagram uh, kind of thing, uh, which I think is kind of cool. Some people down it a lot, but I, I'm liking a lot of the work that I've been seeing on on Model Mayhem coming out from that sort of uh, Instagram, you know, photo filter kind of kind of look. Mm-hmm. To imagery, um, but I do like, like Brian said, I do like the fact that that we're seeing such a variety of uh, things being tried. Um, so yeah, uh, it's anybody's guess where where things are going to go, but everybody's playing with their own thing, and that's good. Yeah, it's a it's a wide open field. It's, it's the 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 variables that you can use to experiment just gets wider and wider with all the different releases of like just what you can do in Photoshop alone, notwithstanding all the plugins that are there and the different yeah. photography techniques with lighting and HDR and all this stuff. It's just amazing what people can do, right? It's an infinite variety of uh, art that, that 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 we see on Model Mayhem all the time, and I I, I find that one of the most exciting parts of my job is all the different stuff that I get to see all day long. That's great. So what's next? So model mayhem, you know, you guys are, you're firing on all cylinders right now. You, you're kind of synonymous with the modeling industry. And you know, I've heard photographers that are gigantic that are, you know, making ungodly sums with, you know, per shoot all the way down to people that are, they just got their first camera and they all know model mayhem. What's, what's next for the site? You know, what, what do you guys, what's next on board for, for the model mayhem world? Go ahead, I Dean, you can go ahead and take it. Um, I actually, I prefer it. Brian start that one off. Okay, go for it, Brian. <laughs> uh, well, I think in general we're we're kind of uh, mostly right now we're refining um, how the tools that that we have to allow people to network with each other and trying to expand that a bit to to allow more. Uh, I don't really want to say outside, but more more places, more people, and organizations who who do use models, um, but wouldn't otherwise be uh, be allowed to be on the site. We, we are fairly strict about uh, about who we allow to to be in the community, mm-hmm. and there are certainly businesses and 
and other other places that aren't directly related to models who need them. Uh, if, you, if you're a, I don't know, if you're a, a book publisher, you might need models to be on your covers. Oh yeah, covers. totally. Yeah. We don't have we don't have a, a a good way for those people to to connect with Model Mayhem members yet. So we're working on things like that. Uh, what else, Dean? The social media aspect of things, uh, more interactivity, uh, you know, between Model Mayhem and say Facebook and stuff like that. Oh, great! That was that's on my list of questions. That's great. So I was going to ask you: Will there be a point where I can connect better with social media, like say Facebook, five hundred pics, or you know, even Twitter or Google Plus? You know, to sort of bring Model Mayhem into that fray. Are, are we look? Are you guys looking towards to that? Yes, we did actually recently release uh, just like a, a basic starter app, a Facebook app um, that allows when you upload a photo or post a casting call, it allows you to very uh, to seamlessly share that uh, with your Facebook timeline. Um, That's great. Going, for, going forward, there will definitely be more more integration um, to to help uh, leverage social media in helping you network now you know one of the other things that i noticed like you know i'm at a lot of events and functions and that sort of thing and and the it seems like the mo for a lot of people is they bring their ipad along or at least their iphone or other mobile device with them and they show their portfolios right there on the spot a lot of people just come up to me and like hey you want to see my work you know and they're flicking through it on their portfolio will we see a model mayhem app at some point where people can just plug into their portfolio and you know do a demo right on the spot i i don't know whether i could say if that will happen okay. um uh there are a lot of there are some issues especially with with apple's content uh, content guidelines oh right right that, that i i don't know for sure that they would be that if we made a face a, a iPhone or iPad app, I don't know that it would be prohibited, but it's a it's kind of a risk that in in developing one and then having it <laughs> having it re- removed from the App Store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, just sinking all those costs into it and then having Apple give it the Roman thumbs down. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, we are we are definitely working on on a a mobile ver- mobile friendly version. Uh, of the entire site that will allow anybody, you know, whether you have a, a Android or iPhone or BlackBerry, if those are still around, um, it, it, to be able to, to use the site more, uh, just more easily yeah. on your on your mobile devices. That's in the works. Very cool. All right, so you guys are moving forward. That's that's great news. Cool. All right, well, guys, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you probably have a million things to do, but thank you so much for for taking the time to uh, chat with me and and sort of allow me to pepper you with all these crazy questions. It's been really informative. Not a problem. Um, yeah, great. No. Appreciate it. So yeah. the, so so uh, Dean, let's start with you. Where where are do you have what what's your model mayhem profile or where would you like people to go if they want to say, "Hey, who's this Dean Johnson guy?" You know, I want to see what he's got going on. My number is 360679. <laughs> they can find me on Model Mayhem that way and contact me or or whatever. Three six zero six seven nine. So modelmayhem.com slash three six zero six seven nine will get them to you. Correct. All right. Cool. I love that. I love that that 
I love the idea that it's almost like a phone number that people can just modelmayhem.com and this number. Even to make it simpler, it's modelmayhem.com slash Dean Johnson. Oh, okay, cool. All right. And Brian, what about you? Where are you at? Uh, where would you like people to go to connect with you? I'm at modelmayhem.com slash BD. Modelmayhem.com slash B. What is it? BD? Yep. That's it? How did you manage to get that? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I called Tyler, who who was a, who owned the site at the time, and said, I want two letters. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool. All right, guys. Well, that that's perfect. Thank you again so much for, for taking the time to do this. This is uh, it's been very informative. Um, so just so you know, this what I wanted the the plan for this is we'll see if it comes to fruition. Is I would like to, to kick off this sort of model mayhem or modeling series of interviews with you guys, and then we'll also have um, one of the photographers from your community come on, and I'm going to interview them, ask them questions about you know how they how they're able to attract models and, you know, just sort of that sort of thing. And then I'll also have a model and a makeup artist on here as well. So we'll have like a little suite of, of mayhem that people can download and listen to. That sounds awesome. Yeah. 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 So it'll be, I think it'll be good. It'll be educational for people that are, that, that they've heard about model mayhem and they've gone to the site, but they're like, you know what? I'm not sure if I want to do that. You know, now they'll understand what the power is and what they can do by just jumping in and pulling the trigger. Yeah, great. If you, if you need help uh, making any of that happen, let us know. Okay. Oh, I definitely will. Yeah, I definitely will. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much, and uh, have a good day. Thanks. You too. All right. Okay, that was Brian Diaz and Dean Johnson. Um, as if you didn't already know this, if you want to check out more about Model Mayhem, just head over to modelmayhem.com. Dot com. All right, before we jump into the listener Q&A, I want to give a shout out or a nod to our other sponsor, and that's, that is Shutterstock.com. We were just talking about stock photo type stuff on the show a minute ago before the interview, but Shutterstock.com is uh, a library of over 20 million stock photos. They've got vectors, illustrations, video clips, and more. So if you're looking for images for your website, your blog, your print ad, trade show, whatever, yeah, or even your apps. If you're building an app, they've got UIs on there that you can download and start customizing. Check out Shutterstock.com. And over 10,000 new images are added to the database every day. So if you don't find what you're looking for today, check back tomorrow or the next day and you'll probably find it. They've got a global image collection. So you can find images from across the world the, for whatever particular genre you're looking for. You can choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages. So you can choose whatever fits your needs. You don't have to you know, compromise on any of this stuff. You can buy just one image or you can buy you know, a ton of images. You can download any image in any size and you pay one price. So you don't have to pay more for higher resolution images than you do for just one that you want to throw in your blog real quick. Um, they've got the whole technology for light boxes, so you can assemble images in there and then go back and, and make your purchase later. And it goes on and on and on. Just tons of stuff in there for you to choose from. One of my favorite parts about Shutterstock is their iPad app. Even if you don't buy anything, grab their free iPad app and you can just sort of peruse through it. Kind of like I do, I do this, kind of like what I do on 500 Picks. You know, you just sort of look through all the gorgeous images on there to get inspiration. You can do the same thing with Shutterstock.com. You just download their, their free iPad app and just browse their library. It's really well done. It's really well laid out. It's one of the, uh, one of the top iPad apps on my particular iPad. So you can try them out for free. 
Just head over to Shutterstock.com, sign up for a free account. Again, you don't need a credit card. Then when you find the images or image that you like and you decide to purchase it, just use the offer code TWIP10 and they will knock 30% off of any package at Shutterstock.com and use the offer code TWIP10. All right, guys, this is time for some listener Q&A. This is the time on the show where our uh, we answer questions that have been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. And the first question, number one, is on workflow for scanning images. It's from Stuart Stephen, and he writes... Um, basically, I'm going to just read the highlights of his message. He says, I have a collection of approximately 12,000 photos and recently completed an exercise in scanning several thousand negatives. He wants to know, he's uncertain whether or not the best option is to rescan the better negatives to a higher resolution and whether this will noticeably improve printing results. So he scanned them before. He wants to know if he should rescan them again. Um, and he's, he's, uh, he's saying printing is unlikely to be much larger than 10 by 8 in much cases in many cases so uh let's eric i want to throw it to you first do you have do you have thoughts on how to answer this uh well i have scanned uh a lot of my work in the past although i was not really a serious photographer before digital cameras came out so i scanned them really for archival purposes and you know so i wouldn't be upset if i lost uh, all the negatives um, but if the goal is to print 8 by 10 or slightly larger, it seems unlikely that the quality will improve a lot, assuming that his, you know, his first scans are pretty good. So, you know, it depends on the, I think, I, I guess it would depend on how big he wants to go. Yeah, 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 size matters, right? So, Sarah, on your side, <laughs> what are you, what are you, I just slipped that in there, you know, I always do that. Sarah, what, what about you? What do you think about this? If he's, uh, you know, scanning-wise, what what should listener Stuart Stephen do I mean you know he's got what did he say he's got 12,000 images should he rescan them or just go with what he has um you know I had this question myself just because we have some old scans from old weddings too so I guess it depends somewhat on like how important those those negatives are to him like those images in particular in particular, so I, I mean, I think rescanning at a higher resolution, you're gonna, you're just gonna get a better image. So, it, you know, if it were me, I'd probably take a selection of those and rescan them, but maybe not rescan all of them, because mm-hmm. really, then you just spend a ton of money. You have a ton of images. Are you really gonna go back to all of those? Probably not. Like yeah. maybe hold on, grab. You can even now that you have them digitally kind of make your highlights, your favorites, like these are the ones that are really, really important. And you, um, I can probably guarantee you're going to come up with like, you know, less than a hundred images that you really, really want to get a high res scan of. And especially even more of a discerning eye for as time goes on, you, you get more and more invested in some images and completely less invested in others. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, Doug, do you have anything to add to that? Like uh, for uh, for Stuart Stephen, twelve thousand. Should he should he follow Sarah's advice and just scan as he goes, or should he <laughs> rescan everything? I'm amazed he did as many as he did. Um, I years ago did um, oh, I'd say maybe a, a thousand or so, but I did it with a company called Scan Cafe, and I was just I'm looking at the metadata right now, and they scanned it at three thousand DPI. Um, 
And to be honest with you, you know, I did it. I did it like Eric said, mostly for you know archival purposes. Just so you know, if I lost the negatives, uh, no big deal. I've got them on multiple hard drives all over the place. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I really haven't gone back to those photos because they're actually not very good. I mean, I took them like a long time ago, and you know, they're actually quite crappy. I mean, I could probably fix them up um, and print them if I needed to, but. Uh, I have really no desire to. It's just I'm glad they're there. I'm glad they're on my hard drive, but I don't see doing much with them. Love it. Okay, cool. All right, let's move on to the next question. Number two, it's about Nick software and editing and light, Lightroom versus Photoshop. Listener Matt Donahue from Michigan writes, so he loves the show. He never misses an episode. Thank you, Matt. He says, I'm deciding whether to buy the Nick software bu- bundle for Lightroom or Photoshop. The crux of the question is editing in RAW. I'm wondering if Nick plugins treat files better in Lightroom than in Photoshop because Lightroom is working on a RAW file, whereas Photoshop is utilizing a destructive process. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, Eric, what do you think about that? Oh, um... Let's see. That's a trick question, by the way. <laughs> that is a trick question. Let me yeah, let me take I'm that one first. Again. Let yeah. me take that one first because uh, I know a little I, bit about this. I was going to say, wait, <laughs> aren't you the best person? To I am the best person. First of all, first of all, both Lightroom and Photoshop are using the same raw processing engine. So you're not you're not if you're using Camera Raw in Photoshop, it's not a destructive process. You're still editing the raw data. So. If when you understand what's happening with raw data, it's just a bucket of numbers, right? It's not even an image at that point. It's just like a zygote at that point. And it takes the software in order to take that data and render it into something that our feeble human eyes can recognize as an image. But the raw data is read only. It's never touched. So you spawn images from that. And that's what Lightroom and Photoshop are doing when you when you bring raw images in them to interpret it into a raw file. So to answer you know Matt's question, it's not destructive in Photoshop. It's the same as it is in Lightroom. It's just it may seem non-destructive in Lightroom, and it is, uh, but it's doing the exact same thing Photoshop is. It's reading that raw data and interpreting it and applying whatever whatever adjustments that you say on those sliders. It's applying that and then rendering that for our eyes to see as an actual image. But that raw data is not touched at all. Do you guys have anything to add to that? Um, Did I, I get that just, completely wrong? I got that completely <laughs> wrong, didn't I? Well, the only part that was that is a little that I'll, I'll ask you for clarification on is that when you use Camera Raw going into going into Photoshop, like when you have the image in Camera Raw and you do little adjustments and tweaks in Camera Raw and then open it in Photoshop, because um, I'm asking this question because I don't do that process. Yeah. So, um, is it once it comes into Photoshop, isn't it already been processed into something? Hasn't already. Been if it's kind in of photo, like when you go from when you go from camera raw into Photoshop, you know camera raw is in Photoshop. But when you go from the raw processing engine, um, yeah. which is camera raw into Photoshop, say in a layer, and, and unless you do a smart layer, it is rendered pixels, right? So the pixels are there, and it's it's taken that raw data and said, okay, here's the image exactly. from that raw data. But that raw data still remains the same. It's still in the hard drive. You haven't touched it at all. So it's yeah, like. Okay. And if the versions, uh, if your camera raw versions don't match between Lightroom and Photoshop, it, Lightroom will ask you which one you want to use, mm-hmm. and it'll say, "Do you want to, you know, you want to process this raw file in Lightroom, or do you want to pass it off to Photoshop?" 
Um, and also the destructive Photoshop stuff, you know, it, um, I guess to prevent confusion, you know, if you're not working with JPEGs, you know, if you just open a file and save it, it's not destructive. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's not just, so let's define what Eric define what destructive is. What is, what does he mean? What for people that are like, what's this destructive stuff? I'm afraid of that. What is, what is a destructive process versus a non-destructive process? Well, a d- destructive process is really, if you change, you know, if you change the pixels, and you can't go back. It's destructive. Even if it's better, it's still destructive. And so, you know, non-destructive editing is, uh, when, just as you mentioned, when the raw file is untouched and all of your edits are really done as, you know, metadata layers uh, that get uh, burned out when you actually do the conversion or you export something. Mm-hmm. But plugins typically work in that space. You know, they work in a space post-raw conversion. Um, and in theory, I guess they could access the raw file, but I'm not sure how that works. Yeah. Yep, I agree. So on the on the the DSLR video side, Dave, Dave, this none of this matters, right? So there's, I remember when I was sort of learning about the Red camera and all that, and I think I read somewhere. I don't know much about Red, but I read somewhere that those cameras are actually shooting in a raw format, just at what six thirty or sixty frames a second, right? Is that is that true? Yeah, and like the new Blackmagic uh, cinema camera does as well, and uh, so it's. You know, when I first got my first DSLR, I was kind of confused on how that, you know, the movie file was. And it finally dawned on me, which, you know, I, you know, I understood what RAW was and I understood what JPEG was. But about a month into it with my first camera, I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, all this stuff is baked in, you know, in JPEG, like, you know, your highlight tone priority, your picture style and all that stuff. Um, and that's the same with movies. Um, all that stuff is baked in. You, you, you can't go back and change the picture style. Um, I don't know what they call it on the Nikon side, but uh, Canon calls it picture style. So you can't you can't change the contrast. You can't change a lot of stuff. So um, I don't know if that actually answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. I think just quickly that the answer to Matt's question is it, it, the the question is moot because Photoshop is not destructive when you're when you're working with RAW because it's you know it's pulling data from the RAW file just like Lightroom is. So. You make the choice, um, buy it for Lightroom or Photoshop because, you know, it's going to be pretty much the same thing. It just depends on your, your own workflow. All right, guys, let's jump into, we're coming to the end of the show. I hate this part. (laughs) We're coming to to the end. Uh, This is the picks of the week section. Um, This is where you guys can pick anything as long as it is somehow related to photography. Eric Chang, I want to throw it to you first. What is your pick of the week? My pick of the week is the QuickPod DSLR and POV handheld monopod. It's quite a handful, <laughs> a mouthful, I should say. Uh, it's a $35 retractable monopod with a little quick release and standard tripod screw on the top. And it lets you, you can also tilt up and down uh, or tilt your camera, whatever you mount to it up and down. And it, it's uh, 18 inches when it's, um, uh, when it's retracted and 53 when it's extended. And this is perfect for GoPro work. Uh, I use this all the time to get uh, different points of view. You know, hold it above my head, um, out the window of cars. Um, I use it underwater all the time, and uh, especially with with sharks. Or you know, if I if I want to get footage of me doing something, I hold it out with the camera pointed back towards me. Um, and it's it's very durable. It's mostly plastic. Um, it has some metal that's non-stainless steel, so it will corrode over time. Uh, but it's thirty-five dollars. It's lasted me. You know, dozens. You know, a single one has lasted dozens of dives, um, and it's it's fantastic. And I I found it on Amazon. I don't know where else you can buy it. 
Wow. I'm looking at the notes here, and you said, example, use shark diving podcast called Shark Diving French Polynesia, available in iTunes. That's not you. Are you in that, <laughs> or is that just a video? Oh, it's a, it's a video that I made using this, I mean, in part using this monopod. So oh, wow. Okay, yeah, so that is of, your video. Okay. Yeah, it's part of the Dive Film uh, HD podcast, which is run by a good friend of mine. Uh, and uh, there's there's one called Shark Diving Friend Polynesia. That's a combination of 7D and GoPro footage, uh, and you know all of the extreme angles are are done with this uh, handheld monopod. Oh, that's so cool! All right, well, Twib listeners, if you are at all interested in underwater diving and photography, definitely check that out. It's called Shark Diving French Polynesia, and it's on iTunes. And we'll link to it from the show notes. Cool. All right, thanks, Eric. Uh, next up, Sarah France. What is your pick of the week? My pick of the week is actually a combination of two companies or two services. Uh, the first is Shoot.Edit, which is currently doing uh, the majority of my post-production. And that basically means taking the majority of our images from weddings and um, adjusting them and uh, getting them ready for our clients. So we now have a few months, well, last this last year, Shoot.Edit actually released an Apture workflow, which I helped them develop. And um, we've been using it now all this year, and it's been just phenomenal, like so amazing. So we're doing new features for the Apture uh, workflow where you can do categorization, and we're going to be launching that coming out really soon. And so I love the combination of the two services together, especially because when we do our post-production in Apture, uh, you know, along the lines of what we were talking about, about non-destructive and working with RAWs, um, you know, that is a non-destructive workflow. And it really allows us to take that non-destructive workflow all the way through to our albums. Mm -hmm. So we do all of our album design in Aperture and we can still have a company help us do the post-production to save time since we have a ton of weddings and we're, we're busy. So we can outsource that, bring it right back, and we don't have to work off of JPEGs. We can work off the raw images with the adjustments layered on top of it all the way through the album process, which is phenomenal. So um, that's been helping us a ton in, in our album design season, which is now as well. Wow. <laughs> so so just, just, just quickly, Sarah, on the shoot.edit side of things. So you're one of those photographers that has you're, you're able to do a number of weddings in a weekend or a week or a month, right? And one of the, ra- one of the reasons that you can do that is because of a service like shoot.edit. You shoot the wedding... You're not sitting in Lightroom editing and tweaking every image like a lot of photographers do. You take your CF cards or Drive or whatever, and you just send those raw files off to shoot.edit, and they know your preferences, and they create everything for you on that side. Is that correct? Yeah. So the cool, the really cool thing about it too is even for every wedding, I feel like the client is a little bit different. Maybe I want the adjustment to be a little bit different, a little warmer, a little cooler based on who the client is. So they have this option where you can go in and customize what the color profile looks like for that job. So every job we submit, we really look at, they give you like a layout of brunettes and blondes and, you know, all these different skin tones and you pick like, like, okay, I want uh, our bride looks closest to this and this is what I want her skin tone to look like for the whole event. And they'll edit that. They'll send you actually a test of like 10 or 15 images that they pick of, you know, some of the best images of the event and send it back to you and say, is this what you want? 
is this what you're looking for? And you say yes, or you say no, do it again and do it this time with a little bit cooler option. So we're able to get back and see what those images are going to look like and feel like 100% confident that that event's going to be done completely as we want it instead of getting an event all back and being like, oh, they went a little too pink on this client, you know, like it doesn't work with her skin tone or something. And we'd use that all the time. Like every single event, I'm making sure that we are on the mark with how it, how we're doing that specific event. So that's really just such an awesome feature that they have. And it allows us to have so much more time to work on different things. We still um, are doing most of our culling in-house, like picking the images, and then we're sending the images to them. But I think right now they're doing like 50% off culling. So I know one of my friends in, in Utah who's crazy busy is just sending them like all of her weddings to be called and be edited and, you know, all of it. So it's, it's really great to help you kind of build your business and stay on top of things when you get to busy season. Very cool. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Shoot dot edit is the name of the company. All right. Next up is Dave Dugdale. Dave, what is your pick of the week? Well, when I first started, you know, I had, you know, pretty inexpensive uh, kit lenses and stuff like that. And, you know, I, you know, I would clean them to, you know, as best I could. Um, and, and I only had the cleaners that, you know, you, you'd get that came with like a kit or something like that. Or you bought something online and they would send you some stuff. And I never thought that much of it. Um, and then when I bought some expensive glass, like I bought a 7200, which is like over $2,000. I was like, okay, maybe I should really clean this well. And... Uh, so I was reading through the instructions that Canon gave, and they were terrible. They didn't tell you how to, you know, clean this very high-precision piece of glass. Mm. Um, so I tried out a whole bunch of different things and actually created a video on it. Um, and one of the, the products that I liked the best was the Carl Zeiss Lens Cleaning Cloths and Cleaning Solution. And compared to the stuff that I had before, it was like, oh, my gosh, I could clean it so quickly and get the job done so much faster and better than this other stuff that I had. It was just it was just, I know it sounds like a really simple item, but, um, and I, you know, I don't clean my lenses that often, but, um, it really helped. So it might help others. Very cool. Well, cool. Well, make sure you put a link to that in the, in the show notes so that we can put that in the blog post for this episode. Cool. And my pick of the week is, you know, for the first time, I don't know, this might be the second time in the history of my hosting TWIP, I am doing something that is completely self-centered. So my, my <laughs> <Yay>. pick, yay, <laughs> this altruism stuff is for the birds. Um, my pick, so a lot of people know that I started a company called MediaBytes.com and it's a, it's a marketing company for photographers. So basically it's designed to help photographers get the word out about their work, get more clients and that sort of thing. So we're launching our first course next week. I believe we're going live on Monday or Tuesday and it's called Essential Web Marketing for Photographers. And we are releasing a series of three free videos that people can just sign up for and get them. You only have to buy the course, you just sign up for them and you get them. And those are available at EssentialWebMarketing.com. And uh, you'll get right in. You'll get exposed to all the stuff that I've been sort of feverishly working in my non-TWIP time. So please check it out. I would love your feedback on it and let me know what you think. I'm excited. I'm terrified and excited at the same time. So 
That's it. Okay. Uh, end of the show. We're at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Um, let's close this off. Eric Chang, where can people go to uh, check out your work and keep up with everything that's going on in Eric's world? Uh, well, my website is echang.com, E-C-H-E-N-G.com. It's a little bit dated, but uh, you can go to uh, my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash echang1, or my Google Plus profile. You can search for Eric Cheng on Google+. I have a lot of photography and other things posted on those social networks. Hey, Eric, I know I know of a company called Squarespace that might <laughs> be able to help you out with that blog and bring it into, like, I don't know, the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely thinking about it. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot for coming on, man. Um, Sarah France, what about you? Where can people go to keep up with you? Um, people can always find me on my website, which is sarahfrance.com, but I really stay connected over the social media sites, of course, Twitter, Google+, Facebook, all those great places. How do you manage all that and still shoot a gazillion weddings and manage to be underwater with sharks and in helicopters? <laughs> I, it's a secret. I can't tell you. <laughs> uh, I will find out the secret and I will report back to the TWIP audience. All right. Thanks, Sarah, for coming on. Mm-hmm. Dave Dugdale, where, what about you? Where can people go? First, and remind us about that course that you have coming up, too. Yeah, I've, I'm thinking I should be able to release it on Sunday. It's the Canon T4i, and it's basically a beginner's guide, you know, getting started with video. So if you got that camera and you have no clue how to shoot video, this is kind of the beginning guide. I plan to do more advanced courses in the future, but that's that's where I'm starting. So hopefully... Uh, this weekend, I'll have a link at the top that says the store um, where you can buy products or training products. But uh, my site's learningdslrvideo.com. And I'm on Twitter, Google+, Facebook, all that good stuff, too. Perfect. Awesome. And congratulations on that. And as you know, I know all the work that goes into creating one of those courses yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the back end and all that. It is, uh, it's fun, but it is tedious and lots of detail. So congratulations yes. on that. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, And listeners, if you'd like to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can check us out, of course, at thisweekinphoto.com. And also, please support support this show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. And also, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a neat and handy way to stay on top of our latest shows, as well as go back in time and listen to some of our interesting beginnings and finally if you're looking for me you can f- find me at uh, frederickvan.com and also mediabytes with a y.com and with that it is time to take that lens cap off <laughs> This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. 